It's time for Dodger Baseball. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! There it goes! See ya! The sports department at WFUV and the history behind it are a story largely untold. That is, until now. The voices that have shaped the student-run station for the last seven decades dive into their time at Rose Hill. This is the Off the Air Podcast, the legacy of WFUV Sports. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of Off the Air, the podcast, diving into the legacy of WFUV Sports with some of our most prominent alumni and looking forward to this week's show alongside my partner, Nick DeLuca. I'm Jimmy Sullivan, and we will be joined shortly by Rich Catino, WFUV class of 1982, longtime New York Mets beat reporter. And he's been classmates with Michael Kay, Mike Breen, Charlie Slows, among others. And, and Nick, I'm, I'm looking forward to this one because Rich is one of a number of prominent FUV alumni who has made a successful transition into being a beat writer, a reporter, as opposed to just going into the play-by-play broadcasting field, as so many have done in the history of WFUV sports. So looking forward to hearing some of Rich's expertise on that front and also getting some great stories as well, which we get from, I feel like, every guest we have on Off the Air. For sure. And nice to get the Mets perspective on some things. You mentioned a lot of Yankees people in the rundown that you just went over. So it'll be great to get a chance to talk to Rich about any number of things. And I'm really interested to hear about his transition from WFUV into becoming a beat reporter, what made him interested in doing that, and just how he feels that the WFUV experience helped shape the rest of his career. And it should be a really fun conversation about that. And maybe we'll get a chance to talk a little bit about the Mets, too. Mets, Yankees, always got to go for equal time here on the podcast. Let's learn a little bit more about this week's guest, Rich Catino. This week on Off the Air, Rich Catino. A 1982 Fordham graduate, Rich worked as a reporter and host covering Rams football, basketball, and baseball, while also anchoring WFUV's one-on-one. Catino began his career as a reporter, spending four years at Cablevision of Westchester. From there, Rich transitioned to the Discovery Channel, Lifetime Television, and Bravo, where he served in the roles as traffic coordinator, director, and supervisor before joining Sirius XM as traffic manager in 2010. Catino became a contributing reporter for SNY.TV in 2010, providing audio and video content to Mets blogs during the season before contributing to WFAN.com as a reporter and blogger. Currently, Rich is in his 16th year as a Mets beat reporter for ESPN New York Radio and can be heard nightly with breaking Mets news. Here's the Off the Air podcast with Rich Catino. Rich, good to talk to you today. How are you? Great to be with you guys today. 
Good to have you on the show. And the, the first question I think we have to ask, which is kind of what we ask everybody in this day and age, is in the past year or so, you know, we're recording this in late February. With COVID-19, with everything that has happened, what has your life been like uh, over the past year or so? Well, it's been different. I don't think I don't think it's 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 undifferent for anyone. But I had some personal issues too. Lost my dad to COVID last year, and uh, he was in a nursing home facility. So there's that whole thing going on right now, where the cause of death on his death certificate is, is pneumonia. But we don't know whether it was COVID or pneumonia. And I think depending on who wants his death to be a certain thing, that's what it's going to end up on the death certificate. But um, Went through that, and then obviously covering the Mets was different this past year. Uh, doing it mainly on on Zoom, and um, I went to the ballpark a lot, City Field, and I went on a couple of road trips whenever they were in Philly and, and DC. Um, but it was different. It was different. I, I, you don't get that one-on-one relationship with players. Um, and spring training wise this year, I don't think ESPN is going to send me down until mid-March because, hey, I got to be honest with you, I don't know how I feel about getting in an airplane to begin with. And secondly, you know, there's not that interaction one-on-one with players, but when games start, they'll probably send me down there to do some updates, et cetera, things like that. And then the first week of the season, we're in Philly and D.C., so I'll probably go on that first road trip heading up to the Met opener. So it's a different environment. It's a different world. Um one of the things I've always tried to do is I wake up in the morning now and I try to look at things I took for granted before, like the sun and the beauty of where we live and the friendships that you have. And just take some time to just look back at that and the stuff we all took for granted for so long that I don't think any of us are taking for granted anymore. Rich, thanks again for doing this. And you talked about some of the changes and the limitations of COVID and how that has changed the way that you have been doing your job, particularly recently. And with regards to player interactions, how have you tried to navigate the differences with getting information from players, from getting stories and just dealing with not being able to be in a clubhouse day to day the way that you had been accustomed to throughout the duration of your career? Well, for the most part, everyone gets their story the same way to Zoom. And that's why every article you read or every report you read all sounds the same. But I have a good relationship with enough men players that I could beep them on the cell phone and talk to them. I did it a lot with Michael Conforto this past season. I did it with Pete Alonzo, Jake DeGrom, a whole bunch of players that – I have relationships with, I tried not to overstay my welcome, so to speak, with those phone calls, but um, it was a way of kind of trying to figure out how you go about getting quotes. I'll give you an example. You know, when the clubhouse was open, Jacob DeGrom pitched a great game, which pretty much happens every fifth day of our lives. Um, You go in there and yeah, you want to talk to Jacob DeGrom, but you also want to talk to the catcher on how he looked. You also might want to talk about some opposing players on how he looked. And none of that is really accessible all the time anymore. And I think it affects the way you tell your story. So you have to find ways to kind of circumvent that. I think a lot of reporters have really become more stat hounds than they've ever been, where they're almost describing players on their, on their war score more than their ERA. 
Um, I'll give you a funny story. Uh, one of the one of the reporters, I, I'll, I'll leave them nameless, said to me, Rich, but this guy has a blank war. How can you write about that? And I said, as they said in the Seinfeld sitcom, war, what is it good for? Absolutely nothing. And I think sometimes <laughs> the stat hounds of our business have made it become that. And certainly stats are a big part in analyzing a player. I don't want to minimize that, but we can't forget the sense we have for our player and the hunch managers have in playing players. And I think what COVID and the stat hounds casts that are going on right now, the combination of that has changed how we report on baseball big time. Talking to Rich Catino as part of our off the air podcast series. Rich, I want to ask about your time at FUV. You wrote a book a couple of years ago called Press Box Revolution. I have it up for the uh, video crowd so they can see the cover of that. But you had a chapter specifically devoted to WFUV. And you said that hosting a talk show, in this case one-on-one, was really beneficial to your career as a reporter. How exactly did hosting a talk show every week or, or often help you out when you went into the, the beat reporting world? There's a number of ways. First of all, in those days, we aired one-on-one on Sunday nights between 11 p.m. and 2 a.m. And halfway in my tenure there, we decided, let's try airing it on Saturday night as well. And I'll never forget that. I didn't do the first show, but I was there for the first show. We were worried we weren't going to get any phone calls. The phones didn't stop lighting all night and you got to remember this was early 80s so we're talking about really prior to sports talk radio wfuv was sports talk radio and the sunday night show especially on nfl sunday was tremendous it was a tremendous way to kind of put an exclamation point on the sports week and weekend um and in that time also in 1981 there was a major league baseball strike that really cut the season in half. And um, I learned a lot about sports talk. I did a lot of shows with Charlie Slows. Charlie and I were really partnered a lot. Michael Kay was really partnered more with Mike Green on, on one-on-ones. But Charlie and I always had a good, um, a good mindset together. I'll give you one funny story. Um, 1981 football season came to do a Sunday night one-on-one. And it was right after the Jets had lost a brutal game, and I believe they lost it to the Bengals to make them 0-3 on the season. And um, I came on the air, and Charlie asked me about it because I was at the Jet game that day. And I said, you know, they got some bad breaks in the game. I'll never forget a, a fumble by Richard Todd that kind of put the game out of reach. I said, but this is a quality team. This 0-3 Jet team will make the playoffs. In fact, I guarantee it is what I said. And as you know, from that 81 season, the Jets went on to make the playoffs. But every week when I was on with Charlie, we were talking about the progression of my guarantee or not. And what's kind of funny in that year, when you think about it, 1981, the last game of the regular season, the Jets played the Green Bay Packers in a snow and frozen infested Shea Stadium. I think they sacked Dickey, who was the quarterback, like six or seven times. They made the playoffs. And because they won, the Giants also made the playoffs. That got them into the playoffs, and both teams played a first-round wild-card game. It was the first time the Jets have been back in the playoffs in probably close to 15 years. And um, I think that um, – well, not, actually not 15. It would be 11 years because 1970, the year after the Super Bowl they were in, and then they – you know, 1981, they got 
back to the playoffs. The following year, the Jets, there was a football strike. One thing about my time at FUV, we learned a lot about labor issues. If any of us ever wanted to get a job running the United Auto Workers or the Teamsters, I think we would have been able to get the job because we learned a lot about labor issues. There was a, a football strike. And then that following year, the Jets made the playoffs and lost the uh, championship game of the Dolphins in that famous no tarp game that was played down in Miami. So a lot of, a lot of stuff like that. One on one was a great show. Um, also, we were in the midst of, you know, Tom Seaver returning to the Mets. And that was another guarantee I made in my last show I ever did on one on one in 1982. I said, I bet you by 1983, Tom Seaver will be back on the Mets and I'm guaranteeing it. And Charlie said, there you go, which goes another guarantee and another guarantee that went well. So I don't think I'm a great guarantee guy, but I think I pick and choose the ones that I think are going to work out. And that makes you a better guarantee guy than just guaranteeing everything. But um, those days were great phone calls. We had callers that really themed themselves as certain guys. We had a guy that called himself Mr. Islander slash devil because he rooted for both those teams. And he made Ranger fans real, really good when he was on the show. But there are a whole bunch of other people that, you know, tried to, you know, give names to themselves. We encouraged that. And I think one of the things that FUV showed was that sports talk radio can work. In fact, the only other sports talk that was going on at that time, radio, was Art Russ Jr. who had a sports talk show on WABC. And I'll never forget this because in those days, what we used to do is twice a year, we'd have a trivia marathon to raise money for the station. We would be on all night and we'd ask a trivia question and someone would ask us one and we would, you know, and it was right around the time that I was predicting Tom C. would return to the Mets. So apparently some caller called R. Rush Jr. the following week said, do you think Tom C. returned to the Mets? Oh, he's never coming back here. R. Rush Jr. said, never come back here. And the guy, well, this guy on WFUV says that he thinks he's going to come back here. And he goes, WFUV, isn't that the station that, you know, has to have people donate money to stay on the air? And he said, I don't have to get people to donate money to stay on the air. So the next week I got on the show and I opened the show and I said, I want to thank Art West Jr. for giving us some publicity this week on WABC. And you're absolutely right, Art. You don't have to beg for money to stay on the air. Good thing for you, because I don't know if you'd get it. And it, 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 it became a little diatribe that elevated to the next year, Chase Stadium, when Tom Seaver returned. I went there for opening day, 1983. And um, it was a big deal. Mario Cuomo was there to you know, walk Seaver onto the mound, throw the first pitch. And I, did an, I was doing an interview with Steven in the locker room after the game, after he did his media scrum. And Tom was very nice to me. Tom was very um, accommodating. And Art Rush Jr. just walked right in front of me. And he said, I got to interview Tom Seaver now, kid. You got to get going. And Tom Seaver looked at him and said, I'll interview, you, interview with you, Art. But you're going to wait until he's finished because he was here first. And whenever, you, whenever I think about Tom Seaver, I think about his great pitching. But personally, I think about that moment as well. Rich, you mentioned a number of stories in the experience hosting one-on-one, -on -one, the experience covering the Jets, the Mets, and working with Mike Green, Michael Kay, and others. Is there something that sticks out to you about your time at WFUV and at Fordham that was a particularly formative experience? This is what led me to know that I wanted to do this professionally or this was most memorable? 
there were a couple of things. And, and in those days, college men's college basketball was front and center. Tom Penders was the coach. Great guy. He helped us all so much with our careers, with letters of reference, and et cetera. And um, I think in, in that era of basketball, the Fordham Iona and Fordham Manhattan, Manhattan Iona rivalries all came to the forefront. All those teams were in the MAC conference. Of course, Fordham later went on to the Atlantic 10, which we all know maybe is something they'd want to do over at this point. But those Fordham Iona games, those Fordham Manhattan games, I mean, I remember opening the broadcast a couple of times and just warning people because we had the crowd mic right near the crowd. We're an R rated crowd today, guys. If you have young kids at home, try to shield their ears, have cotton swabs handy because. Um, it was very intense. And I think what made that rivalry intense was the fact that, and I went to high school in the Bronx. I went to Cardinal Spelman High School in the Bronx. And most of my friends that I was with in school with, if they didn't go away to college, they either went to Fort my own or Manhattan. And I think a lot of the Catholic high schools and public high schools in New York, the same thing happened. So those rivalries, when you went to those schools with the friends you grew up with your whole life, and now you had something you could debate with them on, became really entrenched. And those crowds became big. But I remember a Fordham-St. John's game. I will never forget this. It was at the Rose Hill Gym. We actually got them to play them at the Rose Hill Gym. It was a great game. Fordham had the lead for most of the game until the middle of the second half, and then St. John's won the game. But there was an issue where there were coaching boxes. And if the coaches left the coaching boxes, they can get a technical foul. So it's Louis Carter second, Tom and Tom Penn just coaching this game, and Louis liked to walk all over the place. I mean, if, if Louis Louis could have done the Harvard step test during one of his games because he just plowed a lot of territory when he walked, and he walked past the scorer's table on the side of the Fordham bench, arguing with the ref. So Tom Penders then stood in between him and the St. John's bench, so Louis couldn't get back without the coach, without the referee seeing him for a technical. Louis went nuts. Louis wanted to kill Penders. And, you know, Penders was just standing there as if to say, Louis was screaming and yelling at him. And Penders was there saying, if you want to make a move, make a move. Um, and so I think that that was a great moment. Another moment about Penders, which I think was interesting, we played in a tournament in New Mexico, the Lobo Invitational. And in those days, New Mexico had a great home court advantage there. They rarely lost there. And, um, and used to say, if you went to play New Mexico there, leave your wallet home because they probably take your wallet by the end of the day, too. So in that game, if I remember correctly, the first eight or nine fouls of the game were called against Fordham. And Pender started to get more and more angry as each foul was being called. Then he ran out, to the court, ran out of the coaching box. He was screaming at the referee, came back. And we didn't know what he said because we couldn't really hear him. So we asked Penders what he said after the game to him. And the coach, he said, I can tell you this now because we're off the air. He said, but um, I said, when am I going to get a foul call? And the referee turned, and Penders said it was the best answer a referee's ever given him. He said the referee turned to him and said, when you blanks become more men and play more man-to-man defense instead of zone. And Penders said, Penders said he, he made me speechless. I didn't know what to say when he said that. So there was a lot of <laughs> games like that. There was a game against Syracuse in which Fordham upset Syracuse at the Meadowlands. There was a game Fordham played Temple um, and lost by one point down in the Palestra. So there were some really, really great 
games. There were also two games in which Fordham beat Notre Dame. They beat them one game at the Garden, and they beat them in South Bend the following year. So those are the things that, you know, I remember the most. I also remember the football games because one of the things that we did in the football games is we developed a sideline reporter, which was kind of a new concept when you think about early 80s. And that helped us understand, too, that it was more than just the X's and the O's of the game. Sideline reporters brought that to the forefront. And, you know, as usual, WFUV had the look at the future like it always does and helps the students learn that. And I think being that, that sideline reporter a few times helped me become a better reporter when I got a professional gig. Rich, you talk about all the great games you got to cover and shows you got to do and I think another thing that always comes up on this podcast, in addition to all those great experiences, is the camaraderie you had with you know some of your classmates. What was that camaraderie like when you were there? And you know how, how great was it? Whether it was with you know Charlie or, or Mike Breen or Michael K, whoever it may be, what was that uh, camaraderie like when you were at Fordham? It was great, and when you think about it, you know I grew up on the Bronx Yonkers line. And probably, you know, 10 blocks from where I grew up, Mike Green grew up. And probably an hour, a mile and a half from where I grew up, Charlie Slows grew up. And Coin Park was a, a park up on the Bronx Yonkers line that I was supposed to go play basketball during the day. And I know that I must have, you know, played basketball against Mike Green, probably got fiercely uh, dominated by him. But, and, we, we grew up so close to each other, never knew each other, never knew each other's name. And then we spent a four-year experience at WFUV and then become friends for life. The best thing I can tell you about Mike Green is that as talented as he is, and he is, he's even more nice than he's talented. And I'll give you an example. You could be walking down the street, you know, out of the garden and Patrick Ewing walks up to Michael Green and says something. Mike Green will make sure that if you've never met Patrick Ewing, that's the day you'll meet him. And he'll make the conversation about you, not about him. And that's the specialness of, of Mike Green. And I think that um, it comes through on his broadcast today. And, you know, when you're watching a Nick game, and I always think this, and I am friends with Mike Green, but I think Joe Fan, who watches it, feels like he's sitting there having beers with his best friend watching a Nick game not necessarily a, a broadcasting stat head. And um, Green also did some refereeing in high school, and he brings that to the forefront, brought it to the forefront in the Fordham world and has really brought it to the forefront in, you know, the professional world. I don't know any other play-by-play guy in any sport that gives you the referee or umpire's point of view better than Mike Green does. And that's an important thing to discern when you're watching or listening to a game. We got into the the experiences that you've had and the people that you were able to interact with while you were here. How do you think all of that combined, being the interactions and and the people that you had a chance to work with, laid the foundation for you professionally after you left WFU? It always did. And, you know, Bob Page, the old MSG guy, when he'd see me, he says, Rich, how you doing? How's the Florida Mafia doing? He would call it that. And my point is that your friends aren't always far away. I can't tell you how many times I'd call Charlie or Brini or, you know, Tom McQuaid or any of the people that, you know, I worked with 
and asked him something. He said, I, I did this on a broadcast today. Uh, I think I could have done it better. Any suggestions? And we'd sit down and we'd brainstorm a little bit. And this is well after we left Fordham. Those friendships are very important. And, you know, I get to work at ESPN right now and get to work in the same station with Michael K. Michael's made great inroads in that afternoon drive and, you know, in terms of ratings. But I think the reason Michael K. does so well, it's the same reason he did so well at Fordham. You never think you're getting lectured by Michael K. You think you're having a conversation. And one thing I learned from being an FUV and being in this business I'm in is you can vehemently disagree with someone, but you can learn so much from that person in the disagreement. And I don't think that I would have been so akin to that if I hadn't spent time doing one-on-one, -on -one. doing one-on-one -on -one during a baseball strike where Michael Kay took the owner's view and I took the player's view. And we had some acid dripping debates. I think at one point I said to him, the owners have to now lie in the bed they made. And he came back to me and retorted. And we, we talked about the issues at hand and why I thought that a salary cap is illegal and why I thought that I still to this day think that. And certainly a salary cap would never work in the sport of baseball without a salary floor, but that's another story for another day. But my point on it is I did learn things from people I disagreed with. The other thing that I think FUV taught me is that the history of the sports we cover are as important as the present that we cover. And I talked about a little bit in my book about that and how I thought that working at FUV, we had diversity at FUV when I was there in the 80s. So when I saw women in the locker room in the early 80s, to me, it was like, okay, there's more people in the locker room. There was never this, and a lot of the older members of the media, they had a lot of problems with women in the locker room. And I think that one of the things I learned early on in my life, I grew up in the North Bronx line. And if I can tell you, my, my heroes growing up were Tom Seaver, Joe Namath, Walt Frazier, and Muhammad Ali. The first three I mentioned, everyone in my neighborhood was cool with, but somehow they weren't as cool with the Muhammad Ali one. And I lived in an Irish-Italian neighborhood, and, you know, they were not – they didn't like that Ali dodged the draft. They didn't like a lot of things. But there was also racism I saw in my own community that I said, if I ever got into this business, I wouldn't want to be a part of that, and I would want to call it out. And then – in my high school years, I spent summer camp at down in Washington in something in one that was sponsored by John Thompson. I got to meet John Thompson. I got to speak to him one on one. I got to understand more about racism in sports. And um, when I got to out of Fordham and I worked at ABC Radio, the first thing one of the first things I covered was the Big East tournament. And at the end of his press conference, he comes home and he goes, "Rich, continue. What are you doing here?" And it was a great moment of kind of just sharing a moment with John Thompson, who, you know, I think sometimes we forget how important he was to the black athlete. And um, he walked off a court at BC and made sure that he understood that these play, not every black player was Patrick Ewing. Some weren't going to play professional basketball. He had to get them ready for life. And part of that was making him understand that there are people that are going to try to, you know, trip you up, white and black. And um, those kind of things I remember growing up being at FUV and 
being involved in, in sports. And just going back to how I grew up, you know, I told you about the teams that I, every team that I loved in that nine, 10 year old life of mine, where in 18 months, the Knicks, Mets, and Jets all won championships. I saw a black athlete hug a white athlete. I saw Emerson Boozer hug Joe Naiman. I saw Cleon Jones hug Tom Seaver. I saw Ward Frazier hug Dave DeBusher. And it was because they worked together towards a goal, learned from each other, worked with each other, and shared a great moment. And I've tried to never forget that in my life whenever I'm starting a project. People that are different than me and people that have different ideas than me, I need them in the project, in, in those projects, because I need them to keep me focused on the goal of the project. And I think sometimes, quite frankly, the media misses that message. Rich, while we have you here, I, I feel like we almost have to ask you going into this year about the New York Mets. This has been an offseason, I think, of hope for a lot of Mets fans. Steve Cohen buys the team. They trade for Francisco Lindor and Carlos Carrasco. A lot of the projections really high on the Mets heading into 2021. What's your outlook on the team as they head into this season? And a lot of fans, I think, are feeling a lot of hope that they probably have not felt in a long time. I agree with you, and I think they should feel that hope. I mean, when you look at the Met offseason, and I know there are detractors out there that said they didn't sign this guy, they didn't sign that guy. They got the best offensive weapon that was available in the offseason in Francisco Lindor. They added two pitchers, now three with today's uh, Walker addition, but they added – Marcus Stroman really was a free agent acquisition when you come right down to it. And they also added, um, you know, Carlos Carrasco, who was far more than a throw-in in that Lindor deal. They added a, a catcher that's going to be so much better defensively. They improved their defense up the middle by adding a catcher. Lindor in his goal glove at short. McNeil far better than Cano defensively at second. And in center field, depending on who they pick, it'll be a good defensive center fielder. And I think that's important for a team that's stressing pitching. They're in a tough division. There's no question about it. But if I was going to rank the teams in the Met division right now, I'd rank the Mets and Braves 1-2 or 1-1-A. One They're both good teams. I think the Braves don't get anywhere near the credit they should get for what they've done the last few years in this division. Nationals got some players out there that really were made for the DH. And to not have the DH, they'll have to play those players in the field at first base and in the outfield. I think that's going to hurt them a little bit. The Phillies, you know, have this injury at Real Muto. They say he'll be ready by opening day. But if I was ranking the teams, it would be Mets one, Braves two, Phillies three, Nationals four. And by one and two, I mean you're going to see a re-up of the old Met-Brave rivalry that we saw in the late 90s where one wins the division and one takes the wild card. And for Met fans, hope I hope history reverses itself a little bit on that. But the Mets, to me, are a 90-95 to 95 win team. Should be a fun summer of baseball in New York, both in the Bronx and Queens. Rich Coutinho on Off the Air, WFUV, class of 1982, longtime Mets beat reporter. Rich, thank you so much for your time. Best of luck this coming season and in the future. We really appreciate it. I want to also thank you guys because the FUV tradition cannot be furthered without people like you. You guys, I, I sat, sit next to you a lot of times in the press box. You guys work hard. You guys are great reporters. You guys have kept the station going. You guys are as important as any of the alumni are. And thank you so much for all you do. God bless you and stay safe and healthy. 
Again, our thanks to Rich Catino, WFUV class of 1982, for spending some time with us on Off the Air, the podcast. Got into a lot of different stuff with Rich, who, as we said, longtime Mets beat reporter, has been very successful for a number of years covering the Mets. But I think I was perhaps most struck by, and we've talked about this a lot on Off the Air, some of the relationships that he built at WFUV still has to this day with some of his classmates, that camaraderie between people who were together at FUV, different generations, for example, upperclassmen mentoring some of the younger students, that bond really endures. And I think it shows you just how longstanding that is that, you know, Rich is still talking about people 35, 40 years later that he's still very close friends with. It shows you the, the fraternity and the tight knit group that has really developed over the years at WFUV sports. Yeah. It's so interesting to hear about the cast of characters for rich and who he interacted with and all the experiences that he had, not only at WFUV, but with the people that he interacted with. And it's just so cool to hear how those relationships continue to grow and, they're continued to be put to good use as he has gone out and, and done the job that he has done, but so interested to get a chance to hear his take on that and how those relationships were able to form a career for him and how he was able to rely on those relationships to go forth and, and be successful in this business. It was really a lot of fun to get an opportunity to talk to Rich about all of that good stuff. Certainly so. And again, our thanks to Rich Catino for taking the time with us here on Off the Air. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. Our sports director is Bobby Chaffarditi. Our producer, as always, has been Alex Wolves. You can check out Off the Air, the podcast on WFUVsports.org each week. You can also check it out on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Apple, you name it. For my partner, Nick DeLuca, I'm Jimmy Sullivan. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Off the Air is a production of WFUV Sports.